0: If I don't take a risk and try to do this thing, then I'm always going to wonder, what if I had, uh, you know, taken the ring to Mordor? Right? <laughs> like, what if I had decided to do that? Yeah. You know, great stories often begin with a great risk, you know, taken by somebody to forego a bit of comfort in the pursuit of something that, that could be. In many ways, you have to forget what you're afraid you're not capable of in order to embrace what you might be capable of becoming. And I think that's kind of the story of many lives.
1: Great stories begin with great risk. How true is that statement? As storytellers and artists, I believe that we are natural born dreamers. We like to imagine what could be or the what ifs, but taking that step to actually work towards that dream, that's where the real story begins. And it's so much easier said than done, right? Well, we talk about that and so much more this week on the Story Podcast.
0: While story invites us to ask powerful questions, your life and your story are shaped by the questions you ask. Where is your curiosity pointing?
1: What is the story that you ache to tell? The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. To be a writer, we have to sit down, and we have to do the work, and we don't get up until it's finished. Your greatest work may not be seen by millions of people. Keep making anyway. Rise up, artists. Your canvas is the consciousness of this generation. The only hope we have are the stories we tell, stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers. I've been following Todd Henry's work for a while now, so I was very excited to get the chance to chat with him a few weeks ago when I ask creative people what they do or how they describe what they do, they always come up with these really fascinating um, answers. And I think it's because oftentimes it's so hard for us to define what we do in our own words. So if you were to, if you were to begin a sentence by saying, I am
0: A or I yeah. whatever, what would you say? I am an arms dealer for the creative revolution. <laughs> yes, That's how I describe see, now you what know exactly what I'm talking about. That's awesome. <laughs> and I'm happy to elaborate.
1: and an arms dealer he is. Todd is the author of four books all about living the creative life. He's a speaker, a consultant, and he also hosts the podcast, The Accidental Creative and Herding Tigers, where he delivers weekly tips and ideas for staying prolific, brilliant, and healthy. All of his content is built around this idea of being creative, so I wanted to know what he thought it meant to be creative. Well, let's start by elaborating on what is the creative revolution?
0: Well, the creative revolution is this thing that we're all involved in now. I mean, we have to go to work every day. We have to make it up as we go. I mean, more of us than ever are not only crafting our work, but we're crafting our job. You know, we're sort of inventing the machine as we're trying to trying to write it. Um, and so we really are in the midst of a, of a revolution, a revolution in terms of how we think about work. Um, so what I do is I like to help people understand what are some of the dynamics that underpin that creative process that we engage in every day? You know, what are what are some of the unique pitfalls that creative people tend to fall into when they're doing their work? And what are some practices, habits, rituals, systems, conversations, methods that can help us navigate around those pitfalls and produce the best work of our life? So really, I guess you know, when I say arms dealer, I'm equipping you with the mindset and the tools and the relationships and all of the resources that you need to be able to go out there and just kick butt whatever it is you do. Man, I love that so much. And this is, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here,
1: but one of the conversations I find myself having on a regular basis is uh, I talk to a lot of people who who say that they are not creative. And I think Mm -hmm. that's because the word creative has become a noun. I feel like you're a perfect person to ask this question to. Are all the people you're talking to, would they all consider themselves artists? And would you also have to convince them along the way that they are
0: innately creative? So I think you just made an important distinction that often people conflate, they they conflate, um, Mm -hmm. artistry and creativity. Um, so because I don't paint, because I don't make songs, because I don't make photographs, because I don't, you know, whatever, whatever I don't sculpt or, um, you know, I'm not making some sort of physical artistic product. I'm not, I'm just not creative. Well, no, that's not true at all. As a matter of fact, I was speaking, uh, yesterday, in Los Angeles, and I was actually speaking at a, a film conservatory, the AFI Film Conservatory, um, to a group of filmmakers and and others. And you know, somebody said, "Well, I'm I'm not creative. I'm not really a part of the filmmaking thing." I said, "But you are. You are creative. You are because you have to solve problems every single day. Like you are, you're inventing new things, new systems. You're helping people solve their problems. Like that. That is a creative act. I mean, we have to be creative." Every day in order to be able to create value, to be able to serve the people that we serve. Uh and so when when I hear somebody say I'm not creative, you know, I just I want to respond, like, well, what do you do? Just like sit around in a dark room all day? Like oh, how, you, then <laughs> then how do you function in the world? Like when we're right now, you and I are having a creative conversation. This is an improvisational act. You know, this requires creativity. We're connecting dots and we're reacting in real time. This is a creative act. And so if you solve problems, you are a creative. And that means that you're you're prone to all of the same pressures and dynamics that many of the artists that we tend to think of as quote unquote, the creatives, which I never have liked that phrase, but I've kind of just folded into it now. I'm <laughs> like, okay, well, it is what it is. Right. Um, I'm but with you, yeah. yeah, but you know, it's, I think that we often conflate creativity and art and we have to, I think we have to reclaim that creative side of ourselves and recognize, listen, my creativity as an entrepreneur might play out as d- designing a system, you know, identifying a new product that'll meet a need of the people I serve whatever it is um, looking at patterns and identifying patterns and then figuring out a way to to introduce something into that white space um, those are creative acts, even though they're not traditionally artistic acts. And so I think we we need to get rid of this notion that some people are creative and some people aren't, and just embrace the fact that there are different expressions of creativity, but we all have to be creative and embrace that creative side in order to thrive in this new economy that we're in. Yeah, I agree so much. We actually struggle
1: this, with the same thing relating to the word storyteller. Uh, you know, as story, we have so many people who are in attendance who don't consider themselves artists, and therefore they feel like the Kind of the odd person out in the room. It's just like, oh, no, I'm here with all these artists. And they sometimes say the word creative. Sometimes they say the word storyteller. Actually, it reminds me, even on this podcast that we're recording right now, um, I've had other guests who I've said, well, when did you recognize that you were a storyteller? And they they will literally sit across the table from me and say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm a musician. I'm not, I don't know that I would consider myself a storyteller. <laughs> Do you know and I would imagine the name it's similar. of the podcast that you're on right
0: now?
1: <laughs> yeah. What, what are we doing if we're not, you know, telling stories? And like everything from the way that we dress, the way we communicate, the the way that we live our lives is communicating what we value and collectively, all of that stuff is telling a story. Yeah. We're living a story and telling a story to the world about what we believe in. And so, yeah, yeah I think it's fascinating because we have this, we have the same struggle of people going, well, I'm not really a storyteller. It's like, you're totally a storyteller. According to Todd, you're always telling a story, maybe especially when you don't think you are, like when you're telling a server they got your order wrong and how you find the rhythm of your professional and personal life.
0: You know, it's funny, because I, I, um, I, I was leading a, a team of creatives um, in my, my sort of mid-20s, mid to late 20s. Um, and then right around the time I hit my early 30s, I I remember very distinctly there was a, a a summer where I went for walks every day. I would just go, you know, we had two young kids and I mean, had absolutely nothing to do whatsoever with the unbelievable chaos in our house that I would want to like leave and go for a walk in the evening. <laughs> nothing at all, right? But I just I went for these um these long walks in the evening and I just remember coming to this epiphany on these walks that, you know, all of the, this itch that I've been feeling um, for a while now is the itch of teaching, you know, that really all of this stuff that I've been doing is really, it all sort of boils down to this thing of like, I I think that I need to be teaching in some capacity. Uh, and that was really, that was when I started the podcast, um, the Actional Creative in 2005. Um, that was kind of the, the, the impetus for doing that. And frankly for all of the work that I'm doing right now but I, I think that was the moment where I realized that there was there was something inside of me that, uh, an itch that wasn't being scratched by the work the creative work that you know the the sort of more tactical creative work that I was doing but there was something deeper there's a deeper story to tell that wasn't being told um, and that it was it was going to be told through teaching so I think that was kind of an epiphany for me it was a slow epiphany uh, as most are, you know, Steven Johnson says that most creative ideas are not the result of an aha, they're the result of a slow hunch. And I think that was, a, that was a, the, the sort of the culmination of a slow hunch in my life, that, that period of time and realizing that the execution of the story that I felt welling up inside of me was going to be via teaching in some capacity. So I don't know if that answers your question, but um, that was definitely a, a pretty profound moment.
1: Yeah, it does. Was there some pushback to the idea of embracing terminology like the creative resolution? Oh, yeah, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, first
0: of all, like back in 2005, I mean, it sounds like I'm saying like, back after World War II, you know, back in the aughts. But, uh, you know, I mean, back there, there weren't a lot of people talking about these issues, which is really bizarre to think about now, because now everybody is talking about the creative process and your process and rituals and habits and no, but nobody was, I mean, as a matter of fact, I I went looking for stuff and couldn't find it, which is why I had to create, you know, I had to create the podcast because there were no conversations happening about living in the create on demand world and dealing with the pressure that we were dealing with and all of these new resources and inputs and ideas and stimulus that were coming our Way because of the internet that you know, we I mean, I'm not hundred percent sure how old you are, right? But I think we might be like generationally at least consistent. (laughs) But like I remember, it's funny, like uh, I think I was, I think I was how I was Chase Jarvis or something. We were talking about like creativity and like doing research. And I'm like, yeah, I went over and I pulled the C volume of my encyclopedia off the shelf and opened it up to C for creativity, you know. (laughs) Like that's what it felt like back then, you know, when when you're trying to, to figure stuff out. And so I think really the the best. Stories that get told, or the, you know, sort of the, the, when things really synthesize and they really click and that slow hunch culminates in something valuable, usually it's the result of a lot of the confluence of a lot of things coming together that you've been sensing for a long time. And then all of a sudden the opportunity presents itself and you sort of find yourself at that place of the hero, you know, sort of in the hero's journey where you realize, I'm about to go on a journey and this is gonna be really uncomfortable, but I have to yeah. do this, I have to do this. If I don't do this, and I remember thinking that at the time, um, sorry, I'm making I'm making this like about me and my story, I didn't, maybe that's what you meant to do. But, <laughs> but I, remember, I remember thinking at that time, if I don't do this, I'm gonna regret it for the rest of my life. If I don't take a risk and try to do this thing, then I'm always gonna wonder what if I had, what if I had, uh, you know, taken the ring to Mordor, right? Like, what if I had decided to do that? Yeah. And uh, you know I might live my the rest of my life in blissful unawareness of what what could have been. But um, you know I'm I'm really really glad. You know great stories often begin with a, a great risk you know taken by somebody to forego a bit of comfort in the pursuit of something that that could be. I mean you kind of have to forget. In many ways you have to forget what you're afraid you're not capable of in order to embrace what you might be capable of becoming and i think that's kind of the story of no question many many lives yeah do you feel like you figured out what the source of the
1: division is because i feel like you and by division i mean between people who embrace the idea of the creative revolution and everyone else and and obviously you your work has been trying to take down that wall and help everyone recognize that they are a part of the creative revolution that they are involved in a creative act what what do you think built that wall of division up between like, oh, well, there's there's the creative
0: people and there's us people. There's creative people, and there's everyone else. What created that? I mean, there's a lot of fear involved. You know, there are people who have a vested interest in being able to predict and being able to plan and being able to uh forecast and all of these things. And so, you know, people slot themselves very early into their life in in certain buckets. You know, they like to wear labels like, well, I am I'm just one of those non-creative planner types. You know, I just am really good at just, you know, building systems and organizing things, but I'm not a I'm not one of those wacky creative people. Well, really? Not no, not true at all. And so I'm not in any way saying that, well, hey, you know, Mr. Engineer, you should just, you know, open up Illustrator and start designing stuff for your company. I'm not saying that because just like engineering is a practice or a craft, design is a practice, is a craft, it's a profession, right? And so, you know, we, we all express our creativity in different ways, but I think that we, you know, I think we have to be very careful now, listen, some of the people who complain about the organization's pushing back and frustrate frustration with the creative process, you know, are the, the very people who, you know, if their paycheck is a day late, they start complaining, well, why is my paycheck late? Well, listen. Uh, you're complaining about the very organization that pays your mortgage. You know, like there is, you better be glad that somebody is keeping their eye on how things are running to make sure that your check comes on time, to make sure that clients, you know, get serviced in whatever way they need to be serviced. So like as creative people, we sometimes we tend to decry the organization when it runs averse to our creative ambition um, but we love the organization when it helps us accomplish what we want to accomplish, like getting paid on time, you know, making sure that uh, somebody's <laughs> keeping their eye on some of those, you know, the financial things and all of that. So, you know, we can't have it both ways. We have to embrace sort of the yin and the yang of organization and then free-flowing creativity. And so, you know, as, as creative people, we, we really need two things. The first thing that we need is challenge. We have to be challenged and pushed and we need to be given freedom to take risks and try new things. We want people to believe in us, to see us, to know us, and to really value what we contribute. So that's very important for creative people. But the second thing that we need that we often don't realize is we need stability. We need a clear and level playing field. We need to know here's where the boundaries are. Here are the clear expectations I have of you. Here are the places where you're free to take risks. Here are the places where I don't want you taking risks because this isn't in the best interest of the organization or the client or whatever. And we also need to be protected. We need our time and our space protected to be able to do the the deep creative work that we're accountable for and when organizations get in trouble or when creatives are sort of standing there shaking their proverbial fist at the organization it's usually because they're either being challenged without the accompanying level of stability that they need and so they just get angry they're frustrated because they feel used and abused by the organization you're pushing me you're challenging me you're you're asking me to do more than I'm capable of but you're not giving me any stability or clarity in the midst of the process so forget this i'm out of here right they just get frustrated yeah. These are shooting star organizations. I mean, they don't last for very long. Or there's a really high level of stability. You have that manager that's just constantly hovering over you saying, is there anything you need? Anything I can do for you? How's everything going? Everything good? Okay. Hey, don't forget happy hour at four o'clock today. It's going to be fun. We've got little umbrellas for the drinks. You know. Um, and it's just, it's all stability all the time. And there's no challenge they're not being pushed they they're not you know it, work doesn't feel risky anymore and these creatives feel stuck they get bored that's good stuff man
1: when it's actually i think one of the better parts of hurting tigers is that whole idea of addressing and balancing stability and challenge there's two other words from hurting tigers that I'm dying to ask you about. Before I do, I'm I'm also curious about the opposite side of that equation. And the as as one of the primary leaders out there having conversations about how to convince people that they are all creative, do you also find yourself in situations where you have to have conversations with, you know, the quote unquote artists of the world who don't believe that everyone is creative? And is there some ego that sometimes you have to inject some humility into?
0: Does that make sense? Absolutely. And undoubtedly, yes, 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 yes. How do you do that? You know, I have to convince people that an organization is a symbiotic relationship. You know, they need you and you need them. Um, And unfortunately, some organizations are willing to bend and cater to the talent at the expense of what the organization is trying to accomplish, right? So you have a creative genius that calls all the shots and leads with their ego. Really it's, uh, you and I know it's really insecurity they're leading with, but it comes across as ego, Mm -hmm. but really it's, you know, I'm afraid I'm not good enough, so I'm gonna posture and I'm gonna position myself as, as if I'm the expert. And when that happens, they basically communicate to everyone else, hey, whatever cultural values we say that we espouse, these really aren't important. What's really important is retaining this particular person or this particular team. And that's a real shame. And so, yes, one of the things that I have to help people understand is, listen, you have... A responsibility to the organization in the same way that the organization has a responsibility to you I guarantee you and I said this is a direct quote I just I spoke to a an agency last week to a group a group of um, of creatives and I said listen I guarantee you there is no one sitting in an office somewhere thinking how can we screw over the creatives right how can we make their life miserable <laughs> what what could we do this week to squeeze them in a vice and make them feel miserable nobody's doing that all of the things that you experience that frustrate you are typically the result of unintended consequences. Somebody made a decision somewhere. They weren't aware of what their decision was going to do ultimately long-term. And so as a result, you, know, you sort of got caught in the wake of that. Okay, great. Let's assume best intentions that doesn't mean that people shouldn't be held accountable for bad decisions, but let's not assume that there's somebody out there somewhere trying to screw you over yeah. because it's not happening. There isn't a person here that wants this business to fail. There's not a person here who hopes you don't make your mortgage payment next month. Like everybody's hoping that we're going to continue growing and doing better work and, you know, and improving at what we do. So I think a lot of it sometimes is just helping people understand that we're all trying to do the same thing here yes there's incompetence in the organization that needs to be held to account absolutely but let's lead with an assumption of positive intent and not negative intent when we're thinking about our organization um and so you know and and like you said the people who say like well you know we're the talent there, the whatever. Well, that's actually not true either. Yeah. Because, you know, there's a lot of talent involved in making sure a business operates and, and continues to function. And yes, you might be creating the deliverable that thrills the client. Absolutely. No question. And that requires an unbelievable amount of skill and years of experience and craft and all of that. Absolutely. And so does balancing the books, right? So does making sure that you have all the resources that you need to be able to do that work. I mean, requires a tremendous amount. And I guarantee you that those people who are doing that go home every night and they have a pit in their stomach worrying about whether or not you're gonna be able to continue to do your work. So I think we just have to learn that we need... Again, the yin and the yang of the organization. We need the organizational side, and we need the creative side if we're going to thrive. And we have to assume positive intent on both sides. And you know th- that, by the way, goes for the organizational side because there are myths. And I wrote about this in Herding Tigers as well. There are myths that exist about creatives. You know that oh, they're so sensitive and they're so precious and so insecure, <laughs> and you know all of these things. Or, or they're all about the idea. It's all about the idea. And if it's not an idea they like, well, no, I mean, no, most creatives I know are professionals. They. Yes, they're going to argue for their idea. They're going to fight for it. But then you know, at the end of the day, they're going to do whatever it takes to deliver the result for the client because they're pros. That's what they are. the creative professionals. You know, and, and the whole sensitivity thing is like, well, actually a lot of the ego and in- insecurity that you see, it's the result of poor leadership. It's the re- result of creative people not getting what they need from their leadership. And so they feel like they have to posture in order to try to get something that they're not getting from their leadership. So we have to be really careful not to just hurl these bombs across the fence at that side or at the other side, quite frankly, you know? And, and we have to recognize that, that we need one another in order to thrive.
1: wanted to pause this conversation really quickly because I'm just too excited to not share this news. Todd is going to be joining us at Story 2018 this fall in Nashville. He has so much wisdom to share with us, and I can't wait to see how he will inspire us in Nashville. If you don't have your ticket yet, head on over to story2018.com to snag it now. Again, that's story2018.com. Okay, okay. Back to the good stuff with Todd. Management and leadership. I don't. It's not that most artists, storytellers, creatives. It's not that they have problems with those two words. They just sound really uninteresting and boring. Maybe is that, is that an accurate way of describing it? It's like ah, management, gross. Like people get excited to come to story. The people who attend story, very few of them would get excited about going to a leadership
0: conference. Why? Why is that? The, those words are not sexy, you know, well, leadership is a little bit sexy, right? Because people want to be a leader. But when you say manager, people are like, uh, oh, that's the guy that carries the, or the woman or whatever that carries the rubber stamp. And you know, with this says no on it. Right. And like, boom, <laughs> no, I deny your request. Um, that's, that's, or, you know, Hey, yeah, I'm going to need you to come in on Saturday. Right. Like, that's what we think about when we think about manager, like what value are you really creating? You're not doing anything; You're just pushing things around. That's not true actually. And the reality is that all leaders are managers and all managers have to lead. You know, unless you're just managing resources, if you're managing people in any capacity, you have to lead. And so that's why in the in herding tigers, I actually conflate those two terms. Because I think we often separate management and leadership as if like management is basically just implementing whatever somebody else tells you to do and well I'm sorry but they told me to do this no when you're when you're managing creative work you have to make creative decisions you're helping develop strategy you're helping provide resources for the people doing the work um, you're fighting for your team with the people that are leading you and you know you're also advocating for the organization on you know, on behalf of the organization with your team and making sure that your team understands some of the constraints that that you're dealing with that the project has to deal with. So th- there's a, there are a tremendous number of leadership-esque decisions that have to be made when you're managing creative work, which is why I don't like separating those two things.
1: Yeah, do you find most often that when companies are looking for a leader for a creative team, is it easier to, to take one of their current creative members and promote them to a leadership role versus trying to find a leadership with no creative experience? into leading a team of creatives.
0: That's often what happens. Usually, the, the path looks something like, hey, you know what? You're a really great designer. Um, you've been designing really well for several years now. As a matter of fact, some of your designs have been our most valuable designs. Um, you know what you should do? Because you're a really great designer, you should lead other designers, you know? <laughs> um, it's just like, that, that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever Not necessarily, right? It all depends on the person, but that's kind of the way that we have set up our organizations. Um, The only way you get ahead, the only way you make more money, the only way you have more responsibility is if you move from a maker role to a manager role. The problem is that many people who grow up as a maker... In, in their chosen craft, have learned that the way I advance, the way that I get ahead, the way I get promotions, the way I get more money, the way I get better clients is by controlling the work. And I become known for a thing, you know, and the thing, and we get back to the whole story thing, the story that I tell the world is I'm a really great designer or I'm a really great writer, you know, or I'm a, whatever it is I and mean, fill in the blank with your particular craft of choice. I'm really great at that and I am known because I make great designs and I control things until they're exactly the way I want them to represent me. Well, when you transition from a maker role to a manager role, if you continue to operate with that same mindset of control, you will not retain talented people people will not want to work for you. Why? Because you're going to be stepping in, making decisions for them, telling them what to do. If you try to control the work for them, your team is just going to sit around and say, okay, I'm just going to wait for for you to tell me what to do because you really you don't trust me to make decisions you're not letting me practice my craft this is all about you and you making your decisions so i'll just sit around and wait until you tell me what to do and by the way i'm also right now i have 3 job interviews this week because i don't want to work for you anymore so we have to transition from a mindset of control to a mindset of influence which is uh i am yes i am leading the work and i'm going to establish the the playing field on which you will do your work, and I'm going to set clear boundaries for you, expectations, and I'm going to help you make decisions, but I'm not going to step in and make every decision for you. Instead, I'm going to give you the freedom to be able to develop your craft and to do the things that you need to do to be able to produce the work that you're capable of producing. I believe that a good leader of creative teams does three things they number 1 they accomplish the work which is by the way where most people put a period right they accomplish the work <laughs> well done good job accomplish the work while developing the team that's the second part to tackle new and more challenging work so your job isn't just to accomplish the work any longer. When you transition from maker to manager, your job is to accomplish the work, yes, while developing your team to be able to tackle new and more challenging work so that you're continuing to grow, develop, and you become the place that great creative talent wants to work. And that's the goal. The goal is to create an environment that people say, I want to work there. I want to work for that person. I and mean, people don't quit companies typically, they quit managers, right? They don't quit. They don't just walk away from a great culture. They walk away from a really bad experience with a really terrible manager that nobody was willing to do anything about. So you want to become the the leader, the manager that every top creative wants to work for. And the way that you do that is by leading with influence, not leading with control. Oh, dude, that's so good. Every now and then when we're recording podcast episodes, I just have to
1: pause and let stuff sink in, <laughs> <laughs> which is this weird pressure because you're supposed to keep the conversation going. Uh, but someone says something and I'm like, I'm already like processing it and then applying it to things that I'm doing in my own life and my own work. And I, it makes me want to go get started on that
0: instead of just like, okay, thanks. Got to gotta go. Got to go. <laughs> and this here's the, the hard part is this. That's really easy to say. Um, the reality is that many of us live in what could be called a makeager world, right? right we're like we're we're managers yes but we're also kind of makers we we still kind of have to do the work and that's the reality for for a lot of people and so you know the question i always ask people is like well okay so you yeah you have to do work because you're also accountable for doing some of the work but are you doing all of the work? Is there ever a decision that's being made that doesn't have your direct stamp of approval on, or your direct you know, sort of input, like you're telling them how to make that decision? Do you give your team any flexibility, any freedom to be able to go off and make decisions on their own within those rails that you've established? And so it's not that you never do any of the work, it's that you can't be doing all of the work for your team, right? You have to give them some degree of freedom to be able to take risks, to experiment, to try new things, to develop so that they they are also developing their craft and their capacity to continue to do great work over time.
1: Yeah, what do you what do you say to all the freelancers out there listening who who say, "Gosh, man, I have I have forty managers throughout the year. So how in the world am I supposed to change my environment? How would you advise them?"
0: Well, I think the um, what's helpful about the stability challenge matrix that I described earlier is it gives you a framework through which you can consider what you're not getting from a particular client. So if you're a freelancer and maybe you're working with, let's say you're working with like 10 different companies at the same time that are all hiring you for different, they're sort of outsourcing freelance projects to you. If you consider your interaction with them and why am I angry all the time? Well, it's because they're pushing me, challenging me, constantly changing things, constantly relitigating decisions that have already been made I'm sort of just caught up in the wake of all the chaos. It's because I'm being challenged, but I'm not getting the stability that I need to be able to thrive. And you know what the problem is? That spills over into other clients, right? So the chaos that that client generates prevents me from engaging with a full and clear mind with the other work that is, by the way, also paying me. And maybe some of those other clients might be a a joy to work with because I get the stability and the challenge that I need from doing that work. Um, and yet, there are just a couple of clients where it's like predictable production work. There's no challenge. It's like, hey, just crank out these three things. I'm gonna tell you exactly what I want you to do. Okay, well, that's not a whole lot of fun, right? <laughs> like it's not you're not yeah. letting me practice my craft. So I'm frustrated because I feel stuck when I'm working with them. Or there's so which is more likely the case. There's so much chaos, constant constantly changing their expectations, constantly relitigating decisions. I'm doing a lot of rework after I've already worked on something. They're coming back and saying, actually, we changed our mind. Can you do this instead? Well, that helps you understand the kinds of conversations you need to have with them or maybe the way that you need to approach those clients differently. Um, Just understanding, okay, is it because I'm not getting the stability I need or is it because I'm not being challenged by the work? And as you look at the portfolio of your work, you can begin saying, okay, now which clients are crazy town clients that I'm just going to say, you know what? That client is actually costing me much more than what I'm making with them because they take a disproportionate amount of my time and energy that could be better spent serving clients that I can thrill, that I love working with, and that ultimately will probably lead them to more work for me if I'm doing better work for them. Um, it just gives you a framework through which to consider that. Todd's a productive guy. He's written four books
1: over the last seven years. I asked him about his secret, and he says that there really isn't one other than incremental progress, the discipline to sit down and write a few words every day.
0: Yeah, it's no, there's no secret. The, the first chapter of Herding Tigers, or uh, the introduction, is called How to Draw Darth Vader. And it's um, based on this story that I, I, uh, you know, my family and I went into a gift shop at Disney World and I saw this shirt that was called How to Draw Darth Vader. And like the first panel, uh, here I am. Okay, I'm going to do that thing that you're not supposed to do. I'm going to describe a, a comic like <laughs> over, like by, by talking about it. It's like the worst idea ever, but I'm going to do it right now. Here we go. Um, the first panel says like, you know, first draw the Head, gloves, and body, or something. And it's just like these shapes, you know? And then the next panel is just like, now I'll draw the gloves and boots. And it's like, again, just like these shapes. And the third panel is like, now add a lightsaber and a helmet. And then, again, it's like just these shapes. And then the fourth panel says, add details and some shading finished. And it's this perfectly photorealistic drawing of Darth Vader, right? And it, I, like, I think I snorted when I saw that. <laughs> I laughed so hard. But the reason I, I laughed is because that's. That's how people talk about the creative process, right? I mean, we want these simple principles, like you know, panel one, panel two, panel three. You know, have a vision, and you know, get yourself into flow, right? And panel three is whatever, and then voila, brilliant work happens. And the reality is, all of the brilliance happens between panels three and four. It all happens between panels three and four, and it's really just the result of a lot of people who are willing to say, you know what. I care so much about this that I'm gonna spend whatever ounce of my energy I have to spend to make this happen. Just, I am, we talk a lot about passion, Passion is such a buzz phrase, follow your passion, find out what you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. But we have no clue what that means, Harris. It drives me <laughs> crazy because people talk about following their passion as if it's like something they like. You know, Whatever is catching my interest today, um, I'm passionate about You know, bicycles, so I'm gonna start a bicycle shop. Well, okay, I mean, really, if that, that's fine. But, but it's like, listen, passion, the root of the word passion comes from the word pati, which means to suffer. So when you say I'm passionate about something, it means I am willing to suffer on behalf. I I care so much about it. I'm willing to suffer on behalf of it if necessary, because this outcome, this thing that I care about matters more to me than my temporary comfort. That's what passion means in its root form. So when we say follow your passion, what what we really are telling people is follow the path of potential suffering. You know, when you follow your passion, it means you've identified the thing I am willing to suffer on behalf of because I care so much about this that my temporary comfort pales in comparison to the outcome I'm trying to achieve. So when I, when I write, I suffer from my craft. I don't always feel like doing it, I, I don't, I don't, you know, like, I don't feel like getting out of bed a lot of days, you know? I don't feel like, <laughs> but but my productive passion compels me because yeah. I know that there are people I'm trying to reach. The outcome I'm trying to achieve matters more to me than that temporary comfort of firing up Netflix instead of sitting down and going clickety-clack on the keyboard. I don't love to write. I, I love when I'm in the process of writing. I love sometimes the, out, or I often love the outcome of the writing but I don't necessarily love to write. It's not the thing I always dreamed of doing, but it's the best way to accomplish my productive passion. So I'm willing, if necessary, to suffer on behalf of the outcome. So I just, I encourage people to think about that. When people give you that advice, like follow your passion, don't think about, oh, I'm really passionate about ice cream. Maybe I should start an <laughs> ice cream shop. No, think about, What is the thing you care so much about that you're willing to suffer if necessary to see it happen? Because that's the only fuel that you can burn in turbulent times to get you through those turbulent times.
1: Yeah, that's. I think it's why it's the, I don't even know how to define it. The people who come out on top, I hate saying it that way because it doesn't sound right, but it's the people who were willing to sign up for that suffering because most of us have a strong aversion to it for obvious reasons. and. You know, nobody wants to go through that to get what they want, but it's really what separates those who end up successfully pursuing
0: their dream and experiencing it as a reality. It's absolutely true. Well, I know, uh, you know, I know from our conversation, I know that there has been you know there is suffering involved in doing story right i know it's not it's not <laughs> all rainbows and sunshine i mean there's a lot of you know angst and gut churn and you know making decisions and like yeah. um, even making decisions about vision that maybe people don't like and you sometimes have to make decisions that you're you're afraid that people are going to like you know maybe not like the decisions you're making because you're leading a movement and you're leading a movement that you're passionate about that you care about which means you're willing to suffer Meaning suffer people not liking decisions or whatever, because you care more about the outcome than you do about whether people like you. Uh, And this is, you know, people sometimes get lost because they want to be liked more than they want to be effective. Now, you can be liked and be effective at the same time, but you can't chase both at the same time. At some point, you have to make a decision. Am I going to chase being liked, which means I'm going to make decisions that everybody approves of, even if they're not effective? Or am I going to chase being effective and hope that people still like me in the midst of that? But regardless, I'm going to follow where my integrity leads. I'm going to follow where my productive passion is taking me because you know being effective and achieving this outcome matters more than the comfort of people liking me in the process. It's a really difficult, Thing to do. And again, you can be both, but you can't chase both at the same time. Yeah. Well, let, let's finish by talking
1: to the tigers. You just wrote a book about how to herd them. <laughs> so, your new book out, Herding Tigers, what would you say to? Because my guess is there's a lot of tigers listening to this podcast, and there are people in their lives that are attempting to herd them, and they probably have an aversion to being herded. And I think that's maybe that's why they need to read your book. But knowing that you are are talking to a mic right now that's connected to thousands of storytellers, if you could choose one thing to finish on, what's the thing that you would hope for them to know?
0: I I would love to take our conversation right back to where we started, which is, listen, you are building a body of work. And that body of work is the sum total of, you know, your choices every day about where you spend your focus, your time, and your energy. Your work tells tales about who you are, about what you value, about your hopes, your ambitions, your dreams, about what you care about. And you're building it right now. Even as you're listening to this, you're building that body of work. So are you building a body of work that's reflective of you? Are you building a body of work that's telling your story? Or are you building a body of work that really is reflective of the hopes and ambitions and expectations of the people around you. Now, there are probably people around you who care about you very deeply and who give you very good advice and are helping you make decisions that may not make sense to you in the short term, but you can at least see that they're helping you make decisions because they care about you, that they believe are in your best interest. But there are little ways that we compromise our body of work in order to bend it toward what we think other people expect of us or this is what somebody else would do in my situation. And if that's the case, you are telling the story of somebody else's life, not the story of your life. So my encouragement to you is every single day, consider that your choices, your decisions about how you bring yourself to the work are every bit as important as the work itself. Because the reality is in 10 years, in 20 years, in 50 years, I mean, I don't mean to you know, make anybody feel bad about what they do, but nobody's gonna remember your work. You know <laughs> you you could produce the best ad campaign in the history of humankind, and us, a handful, a sprinkling of people are going to remember it in like thirty years, you know, or fifty years or hundred years. Your company probably won't be around in a hundred years. But, but, The transformation that you experience in the midst of creating that work and the impact that you have on the lives of the people that you interact with and the people that you lead and the clients that you serve and the echoes that you make in their lives will continue to resound for generations to come. And so my encouragement to everyone listening is, listen, um, the work you produce is important. It's valuable. Yes, absolutely. You You should strive, strive to produce a product that you can be proud of. But how you bring yourself to the process is every bit as important in terms of how you qualify your body of work. And frankly, that's the part of your body of work that probably is going to resound more clearly in 30 years than any product that you produce. So build your body of work, not somebody else's.
1: So are you? Are you building a body of work that's telling your story? Not someone else's, but your own, something that you'll be proud of. That is something that I will be chewing on for a while. If you wanna learn more about Todd and his work, head over to toddhenry.com where you can purchase his books and listen to his podcasts. Be sure to pick up a copy of his latest book, Herding Tigers, it's absolutely incredible. And don't forget, if you wanna hear from him in person, he's joining us at Story 2018. Just head on over to story2018.com to register. Prices are going up on June 1st, so do not wait to secure your ticket. I can't wait to see you there. Thanks for listening.